I wonder if the justices think we defame them. I hope so. <laughs> Welcome back to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I'm uh, an associate at Nichols Caster uh, and an ex-clerk for Justices Lil Haug and McKaig. My name is Allison Key, and I clerked for Justices Strauss and Hudson. We've got a full uh, show today. We're going to do some legal news like usual. We're going to have uh, interviews with a candidate for the Minnesota Supreme Court, uh, Michelle McDonald, as well as uh, Michael Broadcorb and his co-author, Allison Mann, who are publishing a book uh, involving Michelle McDonald. And lastly, our feature case will be a defamation case involving uh, kind of Me Too-related concerns uh, that I think uh, was super interesting. Before we get to all that, we will start, as usual, with some legal news. As our listeners know, there are two contested appellate races on the ballot this November 6th, and there are quite a few pieces of legal news now concerning these races. The first one that we'd like to bring to your attention is from our Minnesota lawyer fave, Kevin Featherly, who brought to us a report on the finances of the contested judicial races in a piece called Eight Judicial Hopefuls Have Raised $10,000. In this piece, Kevin Featherly says that the slate of eight contested Minnesota judicial elections this cycle does not appear to be attracting much special interest money, according to financial disclosure forms. In the piece, Kevin Featherly also cites David Schultz, uh, the Hamlin University political science professor, saying, it just hasn't happened yet. We've all sort of wondered for years at what point it is going to happen. Kevin Featherly says that the contributions total have exceeded $10,000 according to the most recent figures, and he elaborates that the vast bulk of that money seems to come from individual contributors not PACs or other political funds, which is what I think Professor Schultz is most concerned about. So it looks like no one is trying to buy our Minnesota judicial races yet. And I wonder, we have like a hybrid system here, right, where uh, judicial absences are filled through selection by the governor, but then those candidates uh, must run for office. And I wonder if there's something about that rather than having uh, just straight judicial elections for all open seats that keeps like big amounts of money from coming in because there's some stability and uh, incumbency already in play. Right. And you hear stories of these types of accusations of political influence in states like Arizona and West Virginia just this year. I've like seen articles like this before uh, where we're all happy that nothing terrible happened. But, you know, it'd be nice to have a serious conversation about rather than just hoping that nothing terrible happens, just changing the system to the selection of judges uh, and putting it out of the realm of big money splashing into the state. But who knows? One final update that we have for you on the judicial contested judicial appellate races 
is that there was a judicial candidate forum hosted by the League of Women Voters and the MSBA in Golden Valley earlier this month on October 4th. Both Justice Chudich and Judge Jessen were there, as well as their respective challengers, Michelle McDonald and Anthony Brown. We have just a few clips from the Supreme Court portion of the evening that we think best highlight the differences in both substance and style between Justice Chudich and Michelle McDonald. The first question we have for you is a question about the cornerstones of their judicial philosophy. What are two cornerstones of your judicial philosophy and why? I think, uh, first of all, uh, my, my, my judicial philosophy is going to be that we have too many laws. Um, and we have to connect with the, the people. Uh, I, want, I want to preserve families. I think that all of our laws are set up to break up families. There's a big fat book of laws, about a thousand pages, this is what I mean by unclear laws, that only apply to you if you're gonna break up. And that's the, the deviation. People understand, don't understand why they have to go to court to get a divorce. And I know the history of how that came about, but you shouldn't have to have judges judging your divorces and your families and that we need to change our laws, and I, I think that most of our family laws are unconstitutional. We have a fundamental right to raise our family. Fundamental rights are like the air that you breathe, um, and that is, is very important to me, and that will be uh, really my primary judicial uh, cornerstone, children and families. So it appears that Michelle McDonald's judicial philosophy is that we have too many laws and then also children and families. I, I don't have any comment on any of that. So we'll see what Justice Chudich has to say in response to the same question. Well, concerning my judicial philosophy, I've, I've spoken about it already. Um, I really come from this that um, I believe that the court should be open to all so everybody has a shot at justice in our courts. When people come before the Supreme Court, I want them to feel like they've, their, their arguments have really been heard, that we've carefully studied it, we, we've done our homework, we've listened to them, we've asked them questions in a respectful manner, um, and then when we write our opinions, I want us to do it in a way that, as I said, is, is, a, is accessible to all, that they don't have to take out a legal dictionary to try and determine what we've, what we've written about them. So it's a very uh, simple judicial philosophy, and I think that's how our courts um, gain people's trust, is by being open, transparent, and clear about what we're doing. So I guess neither of the answers from either candidate really comport with what I understand the judicial philosophy to be, which would be, you know, a method of interpreting laws and, and texts. But between the two of them, I guess personally, I don't think that we have too many laws. Right. I think Justice Chudich's answer was probably a little more composed and focused. Um, I guess distilling her answer, her quote unquote judicial philosophy is to make sure the courts are open to all and accessible. And she didn't apparently provide a second cornerstone of her judicial philosophy. Um, I agree with you. None of those are really uh, what we think of as judicial philosophies, but I get it. They're running for office, so fine. Um, two more 
uh, questions, uh, two more responses to questions we have for you that, again, we think highlight maybe some of the differences in opinion and style between the two candidates. The next one is in response to a question about ethics. First, we'll start with Justice Tudich's answer and then Michelle McDonald's. Describe a situation in which you faced an ethical dilemma and how you resolved it. Um, when I was uh, new in, uh, as an attorney, I faced a couple ethical issues. Uh, one happened in court where um, I was co-counsel in a case um, where I noticed um, to my shock that the judge was mouthing to me to object, object to a question. And um, so I thought that was totally unethical and so I I didn't object to the question. Well, I, I resolved it by being ethical. I mean, I've been uh, an attorney for thir 30 years, and we have our, our professional rules of responsibility. Um, and uh, they're, they're not being followed regularly by attorneys. Uh, judges are not calling them out. I, I think one of the problems that we have here is that attorneys, uh, we need an attorney for everything. And I don't think we should need an attorney for everything. I want to restore a connection between the community and the judges, like connections like we're making here tonight. I think that uh, we should not fear judges as attorneys. Um, we should be uh, completely uh, uh, without fear. And I'm telling you right now, a lot of attorneys fear the judges because they're going to have to do what the judge wants to have happen in the case and not what the attorney thinks that might be fair and equitable. So that is something that I think, feel very strongly about, that we have to maintain the ethics of the judges, and the judges have to have a very strong, a much stronger connection to the people of Minnesota and the people that are right before them. So... Oh, wow. Really fascinating to hear Michelle McDonald's answer on specifically how judges should be more on top of ensuring adherence to the rules of professional responsibility from lawyers, as our listeners are well familiar with her disciplinary record, which involves a very similar circumstance. I don't know, man. Listen to those answers and think about who you should vote for. Finally, we have um, a question about how judges feel about the amount and types of cases that the Supreme Court of Minnesota takes for review. The Supreme Court can only hear a fraction of the cases submitted to it. What types of cases do you feel are the most important for the court to take and why? Here I think we have some good background information from Justice Tudich on the decision-making process that the justices undergo in deciding whether to review a particular case, and then another interesting answer from Michelle McDonald. Um, well, under the rules um, that govern our court, we are to take the uh, most important cases that affect Minnesotans on a statewide uh, basis. And we are to take cases where the Court of Appeals has uh, issued an opinion on the constitutionality of our Minnesota statutes. Um, and we take cases where, um, because of technology or something, there's just, it, it's just an open question about how established precedents would apply to, say, drones, which, you know, have only existed for a short time, or now cell phones, that kind of thing. So those are the types of... Um, cases that we take. 
That's, that's really too bad that they can only take a very small percentage of cases. Uh, what's, what's really important is they have to start judging our laws. A lot of our laws are not, um, don't comply with due process. Due process starts with clear laws. Try reading some of the law, law books, and you ask me if they're clear. Sometimes you can interpret them like Shakespeare. The next step is government adherence to those laws. That means the law enforcement and the police and the prosecutors and the lawyers have to adhere to the rule of law. The third step is a speedy trial. When has that ever happened? Everybody's afraid to go to trial. Uh, they, 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 they are, it's delayed, delayed after day. Then there's an, in, um, um, an in, impartial decision maker. That's the judge. That's a very important aspect. And then we also need adequate legal representation. Uh, an adequate lawyer or a representation. It could be a parent that wants to represent their juvenile um, and say a few words about that person. And then lastly, for our purposes, is an, is an appellate process. And I just want to tell you that if one element of that is corrupted, you do not have due process. Due process is not just giving a process. Uh, so that's a good summary by Justice Chudich of the court's process for uh, considering opinions. As to what uh, candidate McDonald said, I, I don't know. I struggled with it. So um, also in this forum, there were some other interesting questions. So listen to those questions if you so choose in our show notes. Next up, we have a couple interviews for you. Uh, first up is Michelle McDonald, candidate for the Minnesota Supreme Court, who we've talked about at length on this program in the past. And second up is uh, Michael Braukorb and Allison Mann. They are co-authors of a forthcoming book uh, titled The Girls Are Gone, uh, which is centrally about the case of uh, some missing children in Minnesota, but uh, peripherally involves uh, Michelle McDonald, uh, who was the attorney for some of the parties in that uh, event and who is now engaged in litigation with uh, Michael Brownkorb and Allison Mann. Uh, so with no further ado, here are those interviews. All right, we're here with uh, Michelle McDonald, candidate for the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, just a bit of background on Ms. McDonald before we get started. Uh, she's been an attorney at her firm, the McDonald Law Firm in St. Paul since 1987, uh, practicing primarily family law and also leads a nonprofit that she established in 2011 called Family Innocence, uh, which the website states is a nonprofit de dedicated to keeping families out of court. So, uh, Michelle, thanks for joining us. And uh, just to kick things off, uh, a kind of a broad question for you. Uh, why are you running for the Minnesota Supreme Court in uh, 2018? Well, I'm running because our courts need reform top to bottom. I've been in the system, like you say, for 30 years representing one individual at a time, thousands of people before hundreds of judges across our state, and the courts need reform big time. I think you might have seen just recently, maybe yesterday, the Star Tribune editorial board published an endorsement and actually endorsed your uh, opponent, Justice Chudich, in this race. And specifically, the Star Tribune called you a, quote, controversial candidate. Why do you think they used that term for you? Well, I read that article, and the only reason I'm stirring things up, Mark and Allison, is because I'm running. 
There are four judges on the Supreme Court, you know, to total of seven, four that are up for, quote, re-election, three are unopposed, I'm running. This is the stirrup because they don't want anybody to run. They would rather not have the people be able to ex exercise their constitutional right to vote. Ninety judges, Mark and Allison, are running unopposed on our ballots statewide. You'll also notice on the ballot only with judges do they have incumbent by their names. All these judges, these 90 judges that don't have opponents are called incumbents. And nearly all of them have never been opposed or elected in or put up for grabs, <laughs> the position put up for grabs so that the Minnesota voters can, can vote for the judges. I'm paving the way. So you had mentioned earlier that, you know, there are a number of vacancies on the Minnesota Supreme Court this election cycle. Uh, how is it that you decided to run uh, against Justice Chudich specifically? I didn't know I was going to be the only one, first of all, running against these judges. And primarily it was because she was appointed by uh, Mark Dayton. The two other judges were appointed by, I believe, Palente. When we saw your filing, I think we mentioned on our show here, we were a little surprised because usually challengers tend to run against the most junior justices, so we were a little bit surprised that you didn't run against Justice McKegg. Justice McKegg is, was brought up on an Indian reservation, and I think we need justices to represent First Nations from what I'm learning about the travesties there. So that is the reason, even though she was um, appointed by a Democrat, that I didn't run against her. So we've got a couple uh, questions relating to the uh, judicial debate uh, kind of forum that you did recently uh, in Golden Valley. Uh, one of the things you said uh, during that forum was that you think there are, in general, uh, too many laws. What kinds of laws um, do you think there are, are too many of? Well, ask any criminal defense attorney. I went to a seminar, and this was like 15 years ago, and they got up and they said, our, our criminal laws... We're not. We're just very few, very simple, and and they just keep they keep the legislature looking for something to do. Is 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 making law after law after law. Our family laws. It's a big thick book. Have you ever seen it? A family law, and they it only applies to after you decide to separate or get a divorce. Why do we need all these family laws to regulate families? So yes, we have too many laws, especially the family laws. I had one law that incorporated you know, other laws, and I came up with 52 laws incorporated into one law. It's, it's outrageous. And sometimes, and some of our laws actually, think about this, especially in family, they tell the judge what to do. The legislature says the judge must, the judge may. What is that? That's not a law. 
Laws should be as simple as a stoplight. Red means stop, green means go, and yellow means slow down. And instead, they're so elaborate, and the legislature in family law is telling the judge what the judge must do. It's, it's just common. It's part of our court legislative culture. So are, are you saying that, uh, you know, if you assume the job of a Supreme Court justice, that you would have serious due process concerns about the kind of laws you're describing, which maybe contain multi-part analyses uh, for judges or, or at least, you know, have some complexity that you feel like those judges that, sorry, those laws are, are more vulnerable to being struck down, um, in your opinion, for that reason? Yes. The first step in due process is clear rules. Another different issue that came up uh, at the forum in Golden Valley with Justice Chudich was uh, the role of judges in enforcing rules of professional conduct. And specifically, you had said there that you think judges need to do a better job uh, calling attorneys out uh, for certain rules violations. You know, uh, one of the issues in this campaign has been uh, your own attorney discipline record, and uh, you've had sanctions in the past. How do you reconcile your interaction with the Minnesota attorney discipline system uh, and, and the sanctions that have resulted from your opinion expressed at the forum that uh, there needs to be more aggressive enforcement of attorney discipline rules? I think in that same forum, I mentioned Judge Swenson as one of my mentors. Another reason he was, was a mentor of mine is the first trial I had, it was a family court trial. I remember being in court with him and I had affidavits from clients and I was going off. I wasn't, I was deviating from the affidavit. I was telling him facts I knew or assumed. And he said, he said to me, Michelle, Stop it, basically. Stop it. And, and I, I kept going. And these, these attorneys are doing this all the time now. I don't do it. But he said to me, if you don't stop speaking off the record, in other words, I'm talking like without an affidavit's hearsay to begin with. He said, I'm going to hold you in contempt. And I still kept doing it. He said, bailiff? <laughs> right? I'm like, oh, okay, what does he mean by this? This is what we all do, Judge Swenson. We just rattle off about what the facts are without an affidavit right in front of us. So I learned the hard way way back when, and it was something everybody did, but Judge Swenson stopped me, and so he stopped me in my tracks, and I never did it again. So judges have to be like Judge Swenson, is what I'm saying, and call people out. Call attorneys out. Well, it's, it, so yeah, it is interesting. It's a unique uh, kind of part of your candidacy to focus on the attorney discipline rules, which aren't often as uh, as big an emphasis in campaigns for judicial offices. It's just you know you're in a unique position, having had your own run-ins with. Uh, professional misconduct and, and sanctions resulting from them. Do you feel that that impairs your ability to make those points or, or impacts uh, how you arrive at your views on this issue? Absolutely. 
and I don't know if you know this, and I can send you a copy of it, but I did petition the United States Supreme Court and did hours and hours of research, and I learned that attorneys across the country are getting sanctioned for speaking out about judges. I had no idea. I thought I was the only one being investig. I guess having it, it was somewhat a lot of gaslighting because I didn't, I never said anything. I never lied about judge Knudsen. I wrote four letters to the board of judicial standards about him. And they said, I lied when I said he retaliated against me. I think that's what they said. I don't even know. It doesn't even make sense to me why I would, because I didn't say anything that wasn't true about what Judge Knutson did. And I was investigating, what happened was he had, I had reported him. So if you read the case, it all started with me reporting him to the Board of Judicial Standards because of his treatment of me in a courtroom. And I had just sued him for civil rights violations personally the day before and asked him to recuse himself. So this was a very traumatic incident for me. He probably didn't know how strong I was, I guess. And I did go to the FBI the following Monday, and then I did report him to the Board of Judicial Standards, not knowing he was on the Board of Judicial Standards. So when he got cleared, so to speak, then he reported me one-page letter to the Lawyers Board. I think it was in April of 2014, before I even had an inkling to run. But I'm investigated for years by the board. Just just because a judge reported me, he didn't even say anything in particular that I do, no rule that I violate. They they investigated me for years. They would write me these letters. What did you do in this case? What happened here? Why did you do this? Give me these paperwork on your LLC. And it 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 nothing they couldn't find anything. So then when I ran in 2016, that's when they put together a petition, so this is years later, petition, and they served it right before the election, but it didn't, so so there was a lot of hanky-panky going on, and ultimately, after the hearing with the referee, the referee said, I want proposed orders, and the referee signed verbatim the prosecutor's proposed order and didn't even acknowledge my First Amendment claim that I can speak out against judges. I can speak out about what's happening in the judiciary. So I don't know that the judges on the Supreme Court have as much experience as me in the trenches every day with people. So, so, so... So I think I'm going to be a enlighten them, and they're going to be, wow, Michelle, we are so happy to have you on board. I really do. I really do. I can't wait to, to be sitting next to the other justices and, and 
chit-chatting, you're kind of laughing, and, chit- and chit-chatting and, t- and telling them my viewpoint, having been before thousands of judges write down for, for people, the people, not big corporations or anything like that. I mean, that's certainly true. It sounds like you, as you've described, went through a whole ordeal, and we, we were chuckling a little bit about the thought of you possibly having more experience with the... Um, with that, with that system um, than probably any of the other justices there. But, but switching then from your disciplinary history and the investigations that you mentioned that you have been the subject of, a lot of your answers here today have centered around your concerns about family court and how the law treats families and children. But when you're on the Minnesota Supreme Court as a justice, you won't be dealing just with family law cases. You'll hear criminal cases, tax cases, workers' compensation cases. So a question that we had for you was not just in the realm of family law, but in the law generally, how do you describe your judicial philosophy or how you approach legal questions? I think, Allison, it's a case-by-case basis. Each case, each individual has, a, has its own DNA. So case-by-case basis. If it's a tax issue, I'm going to be looking at that particular case. And what I want to see happen is that our appellate court and our Supreme Court, mostly our appellate court, because they, these are the cases I will be looking at, right? Start to judge the judges below and judge our laws. That's what they're supposed to do. Did this judge make an error? And I submit to you that in many, many cases, the judges are making errors, but they, errors in particular of due process. What's happening with our Supreme Court, which is the highest judicial office, and our appellate court is that they are not doing their job of judging the judges and judging our laws. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, so when you do a constitutional challenge, the district court has to rule on whether it's constitutional or not. Our lower courts don't understand that. Our lower court judges have this impression that it's the appellate court and the Supreme Court that can only analyze the constitutionality of statutes. Uh, Ms. McDonald, you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, if given the opportunity, you're looking forward to sitting on the bench next to the uh, number of the current Minnesota Supreme Court justices. Is there one uh, or two of those justices uh, whose work or judicial philosophy uh, you admire? And if so, why? Not, not in particular. No, I, I believe that we need to, error on the side of liberties. And I think most of the judges sitting on the bench 
or have been appointed are prosecutors. The prosecutors are actually the most powerful in our in our system, and I'm not even talking about just criminal prosecutors. I'm talking about attorneys who have their officer of the court badge that decide to prosecute a case, to sue somebody. It's a lot of power to do that. So that was the last question that we had for you, and just kind of turning it back to you, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about you or your candidacy that we haven't asked you about? Well, I want your listeners to know that for 30 years I've been an attorney, an advocate for truth, justice, and accountability in our courts. The Supreme Court's the highest judicial office. I'll be in a position to judge our laws and to judge the judges. And over the years, it's become quite obvious to me, representing one person at a time, thousands of people across our state, that there's been an unprecedented display of courts abusing their discretion and authority and damaging people and damaging families. I want to put a stop to it and protect, in particular, fundamental rights, eliminate the bureaucracy, and make certain the Constitution is upheld so that we can restore faith and fairness in our judicial branch. Okay, I think that uh, that wraps it up for us. Thank you so much, uh, Michelle McDonald, candidate for um, the Minnesota Supreme Court, for talking with us today. And thank you so much, Allison and Mark, for inviting me on. Best wishes to you. Uh, so we're here with uh, Michael Broadcorb and Allison Mann. Uh, Michael Brobkorb is a former deputy chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota, former communications director for the Republican Caucus in the Minnesota Senate, and the creator of the blog Minnesota Democrats Exposed. Uh, he's currently best known for his work at missinginminnesota.com, which chronicles the grazini Rucky case, uh, which we'll hear more about. Uh, uh, Michael and Allison are authors of a forthcoming book, which will be titled The Girls Are Gone About That Case. So the first question that we have for both of you, um, so whoever wants to take this can feel free, um, can you just explain for our listeners how your path and Michelle McDonald's paths first intertwined? My, my path with Michelle crossed back in 2012 when she became the attorney of record for Sanders and Rocky. And then, you, you know, we're... Uh, definitely interested in her as a candidate against Justice Chudich, but uh, this Grazini-Rucky case that both of you have spent uh, so much time chronicling uh, has come to bear on her work as an attorney. So can you give us uh, kind of an introduction into that case uh, and her involvement in it specifically? Um, Michelle became counsel for Sandra Grazini-Rucky in kind of the middle of a divorce case that was already had already been initiated. Um, and she, at the time she came on the case, Sandra had already been removed from her home, and the children were living with the children were living with their maternal aunt, and one was living with their paternal aunt. So Michelle came in. The case was already kind of a mess. Um, she came in to do initially a constitutional challenge on the case in the family courts. 
when I first met Michelle was when she was a candidate for the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2014. I had been writing articles. I had been, I was at the time I was a, what was called a special correspondent with the Star Tribune. I was writing online content for a Your Voices section of the Star Tribune. And I met Michelle during the course of her campaign while she was running for the Minnesota Supreme Court. There had been a, a story had been written about Michelle um, after she had been endorsed by the Republican Party of Minnesota. News had come out that she had had been stopped for on suspicion of drunk driving in in April of the previous year. And to many activists inside the party, that was new information to them that Michelle hmm. had been ticketed previously. It's unusual in political campaigns for a statewide endorsed candidate or any candidate to be a, have a criminal trial that was upcoming. Um, and so my first story on Michelle was about the process that she went through. As the former deputy chair of the party, I was very familiar with the party process by which candidates are endorsed, candidates are screened. And at the time when news, when the news was first reported about her upcoming criminal trial, the statements from the party chairman at the time was that Michelle had been dishonest during the screening process about material in her background. And in fact, Michelle had been very candid uh, about her, that she was facing an upcoming criminal trial. And it was a kind of a bureaucratic snafu that prevented, I think, the activists from getting more information on it. Um, and that's where I first Michelle, met Michelle. Uh, I followed her criminal trial, reported on her criminal trial in, in September of 2014. At what point did that uh, reporting that you were doing, Michael, uh, transform into this larger project where you've uh, invested more time and, and done a lot uh, deeper of a dive into the matter? And, and what kind of caused you to decide to devote that time to it? Well, I am still been working on this for a tremendous amount of time and, and not had the pleasure of meeting Allison yet. But in, in April of 2015, um, just to go back for a moment, you know, Michelle, the election, you know, Michelle ran for the Minnesota Supreme Court, obviously, in, in 2016. In 14, she lost the election, but it was a very close race. Um, and so she had made plans to run again for the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2016. In April of 2015, uh, Michelle contacted me, and, we, and, and she contacted me because she had decided to apply to be on the Minnesota Supreme Court. Justice, Justice Allen Page had met the mandatory requirement age by which Supreme Court uh, members of the Supreme Court have to retire, and so that his upcoming retirement was creating a vacancy on the court. Michelle decided to apply for that position, and it was newsworthy at the time. And so I wrote a story for the Star Tribune about Michelle applying for the Supreme Court. And then a week later, uh, Brandon Stahl came out with a story around the, around the time of the two-year anniversary about the disappearance of Samantha and Gianna Rucky. And noted in that story was the fact that Michelle McDonald was the attorney for the mother. And in that article, law enforcement made it clear that they considered Sandra someone that they wanted to speak to about that. And they were unwilling and unable, they had been unable, excuse me, at the time to be able to reach Michelle. I spoke with Michelle a day or so after that story aired, and Michelle made comments to me on the phone that led me to believe she knew more about this case than what she was disclosing publicly. So what I decided to do was to, to use my writing as an opportunity to drive interest, public interest, public awareness, into helping find these two missing kids. 
And over the course of the next roughly six months, I wrote close to 20 stories about the, the disappearance of the kids. And um, while I was at, while I was writing with the strip, the kids were found by law enforcement. I walked away from the project then in December of 2015, thinking kids were found, there'll be criminal trials, this, was, this would all move on. But then what occurred then after that was this story kept coming up. It kept coming up and it kept coming up. And eventually, um, you know, in speaking with the family and just my own kind of sense of kind of responsibility and, and somewhat also a dedication to this cause of figuring out how two kids went missing in the state of Minnesota for 944 days. Um, I decided to uh, start the framework on a website, which I launched in the in right before the start of Sanders' criminal trial. And then, without a doubt, the most significant event that led to the production and the, our ability to write this book was I met Allison at Sandra's, during Sandra's criminal trial. And we then started to discuss working on a book, which leads us here to today. Now, we understand that she has, Michelle McDonald, has sued you guys uh, twice as a result of your reporting on this case in particular. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And so can you tell us, to the extent that you guys feel comfortable, can you tell us about what those lawsuits are about and what the status of that litigation is? Um, Michelle sued us. She sued Michael Broadford personally and, and missing in Minnesota, the website. So that's where, where my, you know, where I come in as a defendant. Michelle sued, she filed the complaint in the, for the first time in Dakota County. And, apparently did not mean to do so. So she then turned around once she realized that had happened and filed the same complaint in Ramsey County. So while, you know, we had two lawsuits at the time, it was it was just one complaint, so to speak. It was just venued in two counties. Um, in Dakota County, we brought, well, actually in both, we brought um, Rule 11 motions for sanctions, um, and requested dismissals in Dakota County. Michelle was actually granted uh, dismissal, and that case is now gone. So we're still dealing with Ramsey County. We have now filed, and we will be in court on November 11th for uh, kind of a more of a heavy motion. We went to uh, Rule 56 of um, you know, to try to get the entire case thrown out. We decided not to argue venue. Um, and Michelle has actually filed a motion for default because we have not answered, um, which, you know, we've got motions in the works here, so we don't believe that, that the default motion is appropriate. Um, but that's where we're at. We're going to be in court on November 1st on our motion. Yeah, correct. Just to clarify, November 1st, I think Allison said November 11th at first, but it's November 1st, we'll be in Ramsey County Court. So what we believe, and I can certainly, I defer to Allison to correct if I'm wrong, but this is all what we consider to be a nuisance lawsuit. Um, what's, what, what stemmed from the fact that Michelle filed this lawsuit is that Allison and I filed a complaint with the Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board based on some of the claims and conduct by which you both constructed this lawsuit made allegations to the Egan Police Department and other things. And Michelle is currently under investigation by the lawyers, by the uh, 
Lawyers Responsibility Board, Office of Lawyers Professional Responsibility, uh, based on her conduct in the filing of this lawsuit and statements she made to the Egan Police Department. Well, so that, that actually relates to a, a question that we had uh, for Allison. Allison, I think you had hinted on social media some time ago that you know, the, Consti- the state constitution has a requirement that a judicial candidate be learned in the law. Uh, and mm-hmm. here we're kind of in an interesting situation where, uh, because of some of her past conduct, uh, Ms. McDonald uh, has, is on probation and has a supervising attorney. Do you have any thoughts about whether that might or should prevent uh, or, or uh, kind of stand as an obstacle to her gaining elected office should she win the election? You know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, you know, and I, you guys talked about it in your last um, podcast. I have listened to it. And um, it's a tough, this is tough because there is no, there's not been a case on this where a, a an attorney on probation um, with the requirement of supervision. It, to me, and I think you can really go down the rabbit hole here, but, you know, if she is prohibited from practicing law without supervision, and she has to have that supervision on a daily basis and everything she does, you know, what is the full definition of the practice of law? And are you, as a judge, you know, you have to write memorandums, you have to make decisions, you have to do all this stuff on a daily basis. Does she then have a requirement that that supervisor be sitting with her? And what does that look like? You know, to me, that that just, it just creates more chaos. It's, it's inappropriate almost because then who are you voting for? Are you voting for Michelle McDonald or are you voting for her supervising attorney as, you know, the candidate? And I do think, I wish that, you know, there were some you know, there was some clarity on this or some case law or something that that we could look at and people could look at, voters could look at, because I think it's a it's a messy issue. Not only is she currently uh, on probation and, you know, under supervision, now she also has an active investigation, and how will that turn out? Again, down that rabbit hole, if she is elected and she is sitting on the bench and then the investigation finishes, we have a case, how will that end up? You know, it just creates so many problems and su- such chaos in that position for that seat. It's, you know, I, I, I wish there was some direction there. Have you guys been able to get any confirmation from the Office of Lawyers' Professional Responsibility that there is an active investigation against her based on your complaints? Yes. Yes, we received, we submitted, we submitted, um, we submitted a formal complaint. Um, we received, a, we received confirmation. We received confirmation that the complaint was received and that they had assigned an investigator, uh, someone with the board to look into it. And Michelle's, Michelle's attorney, Michelle was provided with the opportunity to respond to our complaint. Um, we were then afforded the opportunity to respond to her, respond to our complaint, which we did. And just within the last couple of weeks, uh, we received another letter from the Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board confirming that the investigation um, is ongoing. And those, for, for your listeners and for anyone, those letters have been posted. And the correspondence is available at missingminnesota.com. So switching gears uh, just a little bit, Michael, you have a long history in uh, Republican politics in Minnesota. Uh, the state Republican Party endorsed 
Michelle in her 2014 race against Justice Lola Haug. Uh, did you have any involvement in that decision? And if not, um, you know, what did you, what do you think about the decision to make that endorsement? Um, I was at the convention. I was there in a capacity of reporting. Um, I was, uh, you know, my, I, you know, where Allison is expected, where is where I, where I rely on Allison so much is in, uh, in where she just has a fantastic depth of knowledge is in the, in, in aspects of legal work. My contribution to this project, uh, I think is, is limited largely to the arena of politics. And this obviously is a political bent to the story. When I was deputy chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota for a couple of years, we, we actively endorsed, um, endorsed candidates for judicial office. The, I have disclosed, and which isn't surprising to many people, the most phone calls I ever received while I was deputy chair was from activists about judicial endorsements. Repu- the Republican Party um, in 2000 and in, you know, 10 and 12 and 14 took a very, very active role in endorsing judicial candidates. Mich- the endorsement, though, of Michelle McDonald in 2014 fundamentally altered the way the Republican Party views judicial endorsements. And in fact, as, as, as well, I can, well, I can fairly say to you that McDonald was very candid in the nominating committee about the problems in her background related to a pending criminal trial in 2014. That information wasn't shared with the larger activists on the whole when they decided to vote on her endorsement. I, I don't think Michelle had that information been fully shared with the delegation I don't believe that she would have been endorsed. And in fact, in 2016, there were amendments to the party constitution and rules and bylaws related to how they endorsed. In 2016, Michelle attempted to get endorsed again by the Republican Party. And the Republican Party decided not to endorse any candidates. And so while they didn't specifically vote to not endorse Michelle, they did endorse they did make a unilateral decision to not to endorse any candidate. Michelle was the only candidate that was presented in front of the body. And so it was, in essence, a de facto vote against her. Um, I think that the endorsing of judicial candidates has, is, will, forever been cha- will forever be changed inside the party process because of, because of Michelle and her candidacy in 14 and what she did in 16. A final question uh, for the both of you. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground with regard to Michelle McDonald, uh, the litigation she has against you, uh, and her candidacy for the Supreme Court. Uh, but that's not solely uh, or probably even primarily the focus of your book, The Girls Are Gone. Um, before we go, can, can you just uh, give our listeners a summary of what to look out for uh, if they were to buy that book, uh, if you have a release date, anything you'd want people to know? Absolutely. The book... It's going to be released on Tuesday, October 23rd, and will be available across many different platforms, ebook, um, and also soft cover. The book is not the story of Michelle McDonald. It is the story of the Rucky family and what happened, how it happened, about the girls, how they went missing, when they came home, and, and, all of these people who conspired to not just hide the kids, not just hide those girls, but to hide the truth. And it took more than just, it took more than just the Andrew Bernini Rocky. It took a whole web of people. And we, 
dove into that. We untangled that web. And the story is, you know, one of kind of a legal drama, true crime, all mixed up into one. And I think in the end, you know, it has a happy ending in terms of the girls. And it is an interesting look at exactly how this all came to be. Great. Uh, I I think that covers it for us. Uh, Michael Broadcorb and Allison Mann, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Now we're under our feature case today uh, called Maithner v. Someplace Safe. Uh, Allison, do you want to give some facts? Yeah, so the factual background here starts with Someplace Safe, which is a Minnesota-based nonprofit that offers services to victims of violence and domestic abuse. Back in 2014, Someplace Safe, the organization, held a fundraising banquet for its 35th anniversary. And at that banquet, Someplace Safe presented a survivor award to a woman named Jacqueline Maithner Jorud for being a survivor of domestic violence. And in addition, Someplace Safe subsequently published an article that was written by Jacqueline Maithner Jorud in the Someplace Safe newsletter, in which she described her experience surviving domestic violence. Her full name, Jacqueline Maithner Jorud, appeared both on the award that she was given, as well as in the newsletter article. After all of these events occurred, her ex-husband, Kurt Maithner, sued both her and Someplace Safe for defamation, saying that even though the article in the newsletter never mentioned him by name, community members would clearly understand that he was the subject of this article as the accused perpetrator of domestic violence. This was both because everyone knew that they were married and because Jorud still used his last name as part of her name. And he makes a big deal of uh, Maithner being a relatively rare last name such that you wouldn't think it was some other Maithner. At the district court, both parties moved for summary judgment on this defamation claim. The district court granted summary judgment for Jorud and someplace safe throwing out the case on a few grounds, including that, one, Maithner wasn't identified in the speech where Jorud accepted her award or in her subsequent published article. Two, the speech at issue was protected by what's called qualified privilege, a doctrine that prevents defamation suits for speech that the court deems to be in the public interest. Three, Someplace Safe had no duty to investigate Jorud's claims before publishing her article in the newsletter. And four, Maithner was unable to prove that he had suffered any damages resulting from this alleged defamation. The Court of Appeals reversed and sent the case back to district court. The Court of Appeals concluded first that qualified privilege did not protect this defamatory statement because this was not deemed in the public interest because it was made at a fundraising banquet instead of with the intent of protecting someone or reporting a crime. Second, the Court of Appeal said that Maithner offered sufficient evidence of emotional distress and the statement's alleged criminal activity for which damages are presumed. And third, the Court of Appeals also concluded that the district court erred in determining that someplace safe did not owe a duty to exercise reasonable care before publishing allegedly defamatory statements. 
The Court of Appeals reasoning also included the following quote, The media and related concerns to protect constitutional rights under the First Amendment were not involved. Suggesting that Someplace Safe's newsletter was not the media and therefore is deserving of less protection from defamation suits, which did get some attention from First Amendment scholars around the nation, as we will get to later on. So we'll just take a quick tour through defamation law to, to start. So uh, a plaintiff pursuing a defamation claim has to prove uh, that the defendant made a false and defamatory statement about the plaintiff, that's one, in an unprivileged publication to a third party, that's two, and three, that harmed the plaintiff's reputation in the community. And the other big thing to know uh, about defamation in general is that truth is a complete defense to a defamation claim. So here, in this case, uh, no party is contending that the truthfulness of the statements that Giroud is making can be resolved on summary judgment, which is where this case is. So uh, whether the statements are true is a fact question, and it's not going to really factor much into our analysis here uh, because the reasons that this case has been appealed are, are about whether, uh, for other reasons not related to the truth of her claims, the case could be dismissed. So like Mark said, defamation does require proof of harm to reputation, but Minnesota also recognizes a separate category of defamation, which is called defamation per se, which is generally considered to be um, such a severe type of defamation that no proof of harm is required, and instead, proof of harm is presumed. Certain types of defamation that can fall into this category include Um, a false accusation that someone has committed a crime, such as domestic violence. Couple relevant cases that will come up in oral argument. The first one is called Gertz v. Robert Welch. It's a 1974 U.S. Supreme Court case. And the relevant aspect of law that comes from Gertz is this, that in the absence of malice, a plaintiff cannot recover damages in defamation on a matter of public concern without proof of actual damages. Another case that becomes relevant is called Ritchie v. Paramount Pictures. It's a 1996 Minnesota Supreme Court case that involved two people who were falsely accused of sexual abuse of a child when an attorney gave a photo of the wrong defendants to the television show Maury, that was covering this particular case. The relevant portion of law that comes from the Ritchie case is that a showing of actual harm to reputation should be required before a defamation action can be sustained. And relevantly, the Court of Appeals did not apply Ritchie, which requires actual damages, to this case because the Court of Appeals decided that Ritchie only applies to cases involving media defendants, which, as we discussed, the Court of Appeals said was not the case here in Maithner. Right. So kind of two questions raised there. One, whether uh, the Ritchie case is limited to media defendants or all defendants. And two, whether in this case, if Ritchie is limited to media defendants, uh, someplace safe was uh, media for these purposes in uh, its act of hosting a speech Uh, issuing an award, and publishing a newsletter. So we will take you through uh, what were some of the highlights of the oral argument as far as issues that the justices uh, really poured over. The first one that caught my eye uh, was this issue of whether 
Whether the speech at issue in this case uh, relates and pertains to a matter of public concern. Uh, so it's a broad category to begin with. It's hard to kind of know how to zero in on it. And the way that the, the briefs did so is, is just by finding cases in the past, discrete examples of uh, things that the court did find uh, related to matters of public concern. Uh, one case, the Ritchie case, which Allison mentioned, uh, dealing with child abuse and the legal recourse available to victims. Uh, another one uh, from the state Supreme Court was the treatment of battered women. Uh, they found that to be a, a matter of public concern. There's some uh, discussion of, uh, you know, what exactly was the speech in in this case? Was it more of a personal issue uh, between Maithner and uh his ex-wife, or was it a more public-facing issue? Justice Lillehaug, uh, I thought, had an innovative way to try to dive into this issue, so we'll play that for you. As to whether domestic violence is a matter of public concern, to my mind, no question about that. But wouldn't that be then true of every kind of crime, that to the extent the discussion is about murder, the discussion is about um, white-collar crime? Aren't these all matters of public concern? That, that's a fair question, Justice Lillehog. And the difference is when you're talking about the, the crime that happened to you or a family member. My brother was murdered by John Doe, as opposed to we have a problem with murder in this society, and I think it's because we have too many guns. It's when you're talking about a specific situation of a crime being committed between two people versus taking that back to the 10,000-foot level and talking about the issue as a societal concern. And there's no question when you read that newsletter, again, it's pages 44 and 49 of the Someplace Safe Addendum, that she was talking about this at the societal level. There's no reference whatsoever to who the abuser might be. So that was Jorud's attorney talking about why this was a matter of public concern, which relates to Jorud's um, central point that because this is a matter of public concern, this case falls into the Gertz category, where actual damages need to be proven. Um, in fact, Jorud says that actual damages should be proven in every single case of defamation. Jorud's attorney makes the argument that there should be no such thing as, quote, defamation per se, that the defamation per se doctrine that is currently in place in Minnesota is essentially a relic from an older time, and specifically in the context of domestic violence, makes very little sense. This court should extend its decision in Ritchie and hold that a plaintiff in a defamation action must always show actual harm to reputation. The defamation per se doctrine is an anachronism from England's royal and ecclesiastical courts that cannot be justified today. And in the context of domestic abuse cases, it's an absolute disaster because it means that a victim will always be forced to confront her accuser in a jury trial, even when the abuser admits that he has suffered no harm to reputation, as is the case here. So you can imagine in making the argument that Minnesota should abandon its entire defamation per se doctrine, some of the justices were quite skeptical that there was sufficient reason to throw out that entire body of law, including the chief. So we have long recognized defamation per se. In our, I think in State versus Crawley, we indicated that we have a defamation per se doctrine. So what would you articulate are the substantial and compelling reasons for us to overrule? I mean, as I understand your position, your yes. position is we need to get rid of defamation per se. And so what are, what are the substantial and compelling reasons that we should overrule our precedent? 
The next attorney to argue was Margaret Skelton, arguing for someplace safe. And most of someplace safe's argument in oral argument and also a large portion in its brief rested on qualified privilege. So someplace safe argued that qualified privilege is a flexible common law doctrine that applies here to Maithner's defamation claim and the doctrine of qualified privilege shouldn't be rejected for improper purpose and improper occasion like the Court of Appeals did. Uh, Your Honor, qualified privilege is meant to protect uh, people from the chilling effect of defamation lawsuits when the speech has value to society. The sharing of women's stories of surviving and thriving is critical to society and the work that advocacy groups do. We've been pretty skinny in terms of granting privileges in the defamation area. Um, So what's your best argument for why we should extend the conditional privilege here to the statement, particularly the statements made in the newsletter? So, Your Honor, I understand your concern about qualified privilege and that it has been applied in limited circumstances. But this is one of those limited circumstances. The statements at issue here were made in good faith. Uh, they were, uh, the court wants to say, the Court of Appeals said statements should be limited, the qualified privilege should be limited to issues of protecting someone or uh, reporting a crime. The court's case law in that respect, and going back to the 1800s, has not indicated that that's the case. Qualified privilege has been applied to all sorts of incidents. The next attorney up uh, was Maithner's attorney, and he had a different take, as you might expect. Uh, First, he's arguing that uh, this is defamation per se, because uh, the statements concerned uh, what would be criminal activity if uh, the statements were true, and so that they should just sail through uh, on the defamation per se test. The allegations made here, the accusations made against Mr. Mather constituted crimes. The majority of jurisdictions in this country do not follow the Ritchie line of reasoning. And in fact, the courts say that, most of the courts say that defamation per se, meaning accusations of criminal conduct, gives rise to presumed damages, as, rich, as the Gertz does case says, does too. Mather's argument is that even if the court doesn't accept uh, that first argument regarding the criminal nature of the allegations, that uh, the Ritchie case, which requires uh, actual damages regarding uh, statements of public concern by media organizations, does not apply here because uh, Someplace Safe is not a media organization. Well, Ritchie's quite a bit different than this case, Your Honor, in several respects. First of all, Ritchie was a traditional media case, and this court noted that in several portions of its decision. Well, the references are made constantly to media. In the Gertz case, reference was to media. In the Ritchie case, the reference is to media. Right. Those references to media mean the media that are conventionally consisting, consist of communications to a wide segment of the public. Meithner further makes the argument that Ritchie doesn't apply to this specific case because Ritchie was a case about a mistake. The attorney gave the wrong photo to the Maury TV show, whereas here, this was more than a mistake. Maithner makes the point that Someplace Safe did act with actual malice here because they had a policy of never questioning any of the claims of their survivors, which did amount to a reckless disregard for the truth or falsity of the claims asserted, which disqualifies 
Richie from applying here, and therefore Maithner would not have to prove actual damages. In this case, Someplace Safe says it has a policy, it's, that's its word, we have a policy of accepting, we take everything we are told, quote, at face value. They were, I was, they were asked in the deposition, do you care whether it's accurate or not? Answer, no. Does it matter whether what you are being told is accurate or not? No. Does it matter whether it's truthful or not? No. Does it matter whether it's misleading or not? No. Ritchie was not a case of actual malice, meaning knowing falsely or reckless disregard for the truth. In Ritchie, there was a mistake. It was negligent what they did, and that was sufficient in the Ritchie case. In this case, we're maintaining that the, that the publication of that newsletter was done with knowing falsely or reckless disregard for the truth. It satisfies the Gertz standard for presumed damages. So those are the main outlines of the argument. I think Another way that's helpful to get at the parameters of what the justices uh, were thinking is going through the different hypotheticals where they tried to carve out the boundaries uh, of the rules being discussed. So we've got uh, a few of them here, and we'll just play them for you back to back. If, if we didn't have the newsletter, if all we had was the Survivor Award, uh, what's your view about how the case comes out? Jurors. Let me follow up on the Chief Justice's question about the banquet. Did someplace safe have an obligation to vet Ms. Jorward's remarks before she gave them? Well, let's assume, let's assume we just use the victim's first name. So let's say someplace safe had published a newsletter without Ms. Jorward's um, speech within it. But it, let's assume that on its website it has the opportunity for comments on the newsletter or anything else. And instead she had written in a comment, would someplace safe be liable for defamation? in allowing that comment to be published? In a comment to be published? Yes. Probably not. Um, so that's an interesting example of an attorney kind of going along with one of Justice Thillehaug's hypotheticals and saying, yeah, actually, though the rule of law I'm proposing is still the same, when you change the facts that way, it does change the outcome. And I think it was kind of a refreshing way to actually engage in the hypothetical with Justice Thillehaug there. And last thing before we go, we've got a couple uh, just kind of strange developments at oral argument. The first one is uh, the attorney for Maithner pulling uh, a trick that I've seen at trial court, but uh, have never seen at an appellate court. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. I represent Kurt Maithner, the uh, respondent, the plaintiff in this case who brought the case. Mr. Maithner is in court today with his family. Mr. Maithner feels strongly about this case. Like you're in an appellate court they're deciding like significant principles of law. I, like you can hear him turning around and like gesturing back to Maithner who's sitting there. I think it's not really the right venue for that. And maybe our listeners don't know that parties don't usually come to appellate court arguments, but the fact that he was there wasn't particularly significant in any way that he was making a cameo at his own case. It's certainly not going to impress the justices. They, they're worried about, uh, with no disrespect to Mr. Maithner, they're worried about uh, principles that will last far beyond him. So that might be an example of trying to bring uh, a, a kind of personal gravity to oral argument when it's not really called for. Uh, on the flip side of that, the attorney for Jorud trying to bring some levity to the oral argument, and uh, I just do not think it really came off. The problem here is that Kurt has absolutely no evidence. I mean, right now, I'm going to give you every single record piece of evidence that he points to where someone said that his reputation was diminished in their eyes. Are you ready? Go right ahead. I'm done. 
There's literally nothing. I think you can probably hear Justice Lohug there figuring out what's about to happen and being like, Ugh, go, go ahead. ahead. I don't care for your antics. Yeah. I don't like rhetorical questions are uh, bad enough, but yikes. Right. I think oral argument 101 is don't attempt humor that you aren't sure is going to land. And I don't think he was very sure that that was going to land. Or like maybe planned jokes, uh, full stop, you should not try. Just avoid them. Yeah, I think the court is open to some situational humor if it arises, but uh, yikes. No, it's not stand-up. So in addition to the three attorneys who argued for the parties here, there were a lot of amicus briefs filed in this case. Um, The first and probably most significant one was from a group of law professors and bloggers and podcasters led by Eugene Volokh, a First Amendment scholar from the UCLA School of Law. And my favorite line in actually Maithner's brief is when he addresses the amicus briefs filed and says, quote, rarely have so many advocates been so wrong about so much, end quote. He also calls Eugene Volokh et al., quote, self-proclaimed, First Amendment scholars, along with some bloggers and podcasters, end quote, which props to him for his confidence for the first dig and kind of right on for the second dig about bloggers and podcasters. I don't know. Like, I'm sure Eugene Volokh is a self-proclaimed First Amendment scholar, but he's also proclaimed to be that by like everyone else. I don't know. He continues, Maithner then continues in his brief to put scare quotes around scholars for the rest (laughs) of the discussion of this brief, which, at least as it relates to the podcasters, seems fair to me. I think both of us are supportive of a lot more shade and sarcasm in Supreme Court briefing generally. It makes page 41 a little more tolerable. Uh, Allison, who's going to win this case? This is a tough question, both because of not only the vote apportionment, but also because there's a few different ways that the court could decide. Um, The chief, I think, was all over the board in terms of who she seemed to be for or against. I think she's obviously assigned this opinion, but given the fact that she was asking tough questions of both sides, I think she's kind of a wild card for me. I think you have Justice Lillehaug, Justice Chudich, and Justice McKegg pretty clearly stepping in, asking broader policy-based questions that seemed to favor the Jorud someplace safe side. I think Justice Thiessen was also kind of a toss-up based on what I can remember from oral argument. But I think because his most significant series of questions was trying to get Maithner's attorney to argue that he could prove damages, I'm going to put him in the sympathetic to Jorud someplace safe column. So as far as I can tell, it seems like we have... Um, at least four votes for Joe Rude someplace safe. As far as what I think the result will be, whether they'll abolish defamation per se or apply Ritchie to someplace safe in Joe Rude, either because they decided to extend Ritchie to non-media or because they decided someplace safe for Joe Rude were media, I think that's a harder question. I think Justice Lillehag at one point asked about the remedy if the court did, in fact, abolish defamation per se, so it sounds like they've at least gone that far down the road of considering it. Um, let's say we decide to, that we agree with you that the, um, that per quad and per se doesn't make any sense anymore. Wouldn't, wouldn't the remedy then be to remand the case to allow Mr. Tannock's client to come up with some evidence of people 
who think his reputation has been harmed. But I still think that abolishing an entire doctrine of law is kind of a long shot, so I feel like they are going to apply Ritchie to someplace safe in Jorud, arguing that because it was so widely disseminated, they count as media defendants in the way that at least the attorney in Ritchie was when he gave the photo to the TV station. That, I think, was a super competent summary. I think, I'm going to go as far as to say that I think this will be a unanimous opinion. I think you're right that you have at least four votes, and it's a big issue. Uh, It's drawing all this uh, important amicus attention, and, uh, you know, it's a a real meaty issue of of defamation law. So I I think the court will try to be unanimous, if possible. Um, As to what they will end up deciding, I think I probably... Uh, see it the same way you did. Um, Okay, what did we learn from the case today? Today we learned from the case that um, the common law may or may not be a member of the media, given that we barely disseminate anything, much less widely so. So hopefully we won't defame anyone and not be able to enjoy the protections of media. Uh, Yeah. Is that too dark? It's very dark. I'm very surprised. Like, all of your jokes about the show is, like, how important we are. And, like, you're doing a complete 180 right now. But we did need a joke, and you came through. That's it for this episode of The Common Law. Check us out uh, on Twitter at, at The Common Law. Thanks to a bunch of people today, our communications director, Chloe, our audio engineers, Connor and Paul Key. Thanks to the Michael Schultz Law Firm, uh, sponsor of The Common Law. And thanks to you for listening. Have a nice one, commoners. you, what do we need judges for?